Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? So um, I want to start uh, before I jump into the sermon. Uh, we are, uh, as a church, we're still praying for our country, for the world, and, and certainly for Ukraine. And as Janessa mentioned, uh, this is communion weekend, which uh, is a tradition here, the first weekend of the month that we would have communion. And, uh, and so uh, this month, or one of the things that we do when we do communion is we also take a benevolence offering. And uh, so this week, our benevolence offering uh, is going to be going towards the relief efforts in Ukraine. And we'll be partner partnering with Samaritan's Purse for this, but we are exploring a, a handful of other organizations that work directly with Ukrainian churches that we might be able to support as well. Uh, but if you want to give towards that Ukraine relief effort, uh, what you can do, you can do that online. Just indicate in the, in the note that you want it to go towards uh, the re Ukraine special offering. Or if you're using one of the offering envelopes in the seat pocket, uh, just just mark uh, your your desire on that, and then those will be dropped in those boxes that Janessa talked about at the back of the worship center. Uh, but if you would join me now, we're just going to go to the Lord in prayer and just pray for our world and for uh, Ukraine. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, we need you. Uh, there's uh, much uncertainty in our country and in our world today, and Lord, we are grateful that in the, in the midst of uncertainty, uh, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And uh, God, uh, there's so much that we have to ask, but Lord, uh, your will be done. God, we do uh, specifically want to lift up the situation uh, in our world right now. We God, I pray that you would redeem this situation in Ukraine and that you would draw many people to yourself. Lord, I pray that the Ukrainians and the Russians would realize that Jesus and only Jesus is the source of hope and peace and comfort. I pray that you would deliver Ukraine from evil, that you would have mercy and that you would heal their land. I ask your blessing on, and safety on soldiers' wives and children while their husbands and fathers are gone. I pray for wisdom and compassion and grace for our world leaders. I pray that your church will remain united under the banner of Christ. I pray for our Ukrainian brothers and sisters, that you would keep them safe and that they wouldn't be dissuaded from continuing to share the gospel to the lost. Lord, help us to know how you would like us to respond in this moment that we are in. And God, thank you that you promised to never leave us or forsake us. We rest in your goodness. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So a couple weeks ago, uh, we read in Mark chapter 9 about how the disciples reacted to Jesus, who for the second time was telling them clearly about what was going to happen to him, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And remember, throughout his ministry, uh, he's been teaching, uh, discipling his followers. But after this second attempt that he made at telling his disciples what was going to happen, it's as if he's acknowledging that his time is limited and he increases his pace of teaching and ministry. In chapter 10 alone, there are three lessons touching on our heart and our heart attitude. And today I'm just going to focus on the first one. It, 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 the heading in your Bible likely says something about, uh, along the lines of teaching about divorce. But before I jump into that, I want to highlight something that I don't want us to miss. 
A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Tome reminded us that Jesus placed a child in their midst and told them in in, uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And this is a reminder that we would honor those that our culture might neglect. And in this case, he, he used children. Then last week, Pastor Jim taught on verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And then next week, we're going to begin in verse 13, where we read these words. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. At LC3, we are a family-equipping church because we believe that children are important. And the best way for us to love and disciple children is by supporting and resourcing parents. We believe parents should play that vital and primary role as that first and best disciple-maker for their own children. And because of that, one of the things we do here at LC3 is to purposefully create opportunities for parents to publicly bless their children. And one of the ways is our child dedication parent commitment ceremony that we do. And this weekend, we are dedicating nine children to the Lord. I think it's the most we've ever done in one weekend. Uh, Three of them, we're going to do this service. And so at this time, I'd like to invite those families to come on up and join me. Let's give them a nice round of applause. While they're walking up, let me uh, tell you a little bit about what's going to happen. Uh, I mentioned this is a child dedication, but it's also a parent commitment because we are, uh, we're always reminding parents that their children didn't make the decision to come up here uh, in front of all of you. Uh, this was a parent decision. And so with that, there's some, there's some uh, commitments that we ask the parents to make. Uh, and, you know, we get that modeled when we look in the Bible and see Hannah bringing Samuel and Mary and Joseph bringing our Lord uh, Jesus to the temple to be dedicated and, and uh, following that model is what we want to do. And and they're doing by choosing to dedicate their children. And so we do ask them to make some commitments. uh, But before I do that, I'd like love for them just to very quickly introduce themselves and their families so that you all know who's standing up here in front of you. I don't think it is. Sorry. If you can hear me, my name is Ray. <laughs> uh, this is my wife, Allison. And we're excited to be here. If this works for you guys. If you can hear me. <laughs> I'm Taylor. This is my wife, Carmen Hartmeyer. These are our three children, Brooke, Oliver, and Laura. And today we're dedicating Oliver. Hello, uh, my name is JR, this is my beautiful wife, Joy, and this is our first son, Judah. All right, we'll, uh, we'll get the mic going here in a sec, but uh, while, uh, while they're working on that, let me, um, let me just explain. So part of the, uh, our commitment as a family equipping church is to make sure that uh, all of these parents have gone through what we call starting point. It's just a... Uh, Sorry, I'd always say that. First steps, uh, which is, uh, you know, our, our 
chance to give them the basics uh, that we feel like they need to have in, in order to uh, raise their kids and make this commitment that they're making today. Uh, there are also some questions that we ask them to respond to uh, in writing, which they have all done that. Uh, but today or to, uh, this morning, I'm going to actually ask them to respond uh, verbally. And so uh, let me get so I can see you guys. I'm going to ignore you guys and look at these guys. Uh, all right. So I know you guys have already uh, responded in writing, but now in front of your family and your uh, eternal church family, I'm going to ask you the questions again. And if it, your intention is yes, please respond with we do. All right. So uh, the first question is, do you receive Wesley and Judah and Oliver with gratitude as God's gift to you and your family? And do you choose this day to live with the commands of God on your heart? And do you commit to lead a faith-filled home that honors God in your relationships and in the choices you make in spiritually growing your family? And do you accept responsibility as your child's first and best discipler? And do you commit to pray for Wesley and Judah and Oliver to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? And do you commit to strengthen your marriage relationship, creating a stable environment in which your children can mature? All right. And then congregation, I always have a question for you as well. And so after I ask this question, I'd like you to respond uh, like you mean it with we do. And the question is, do you commit to supporting and encouraging the Carlsons, the Greenways and the Harmeyers as the Lord leads in fulfilling these commitments? Good job. So the parents have chosen a verse uh, for this occasion, and they've also written a short blessing. And so I'm going to start down there with the Carlsons and let them go ahead and share that with us. This is Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so uh, Wesley and to our church family here, our, our hope for Wesley um, is that uh, as the world changes and as um, all of your uh, life ends up, as we know, not being a straight line, but even as you maybe lose friends and maybe as life is tumultuous, you would remember that your God will always remain the same, no matter what. And then we want to read a, a short a quote from uh, his namesake, John Wesley. So, uh, for what end is life bestowed upon the children of men? Why were we sent into the world? For one sole end and for no other, to prepare for eternity. For this alone we live. For this and no other purpose is our life either given or continued. <clears throat> it pleased the all-wise God at the season which he saw best to arise in the greatness of his strength and create the heavens and the earth and all things that are therein, having prepared all things for him, he created man in his own image, after his own likeness. And what was the end of his creation? It was one and no other, that he may, might know and love and enjoy and serve his great creator to all eternity. Wesley liked it. Uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for peace and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And our blessing is, Oliver, may you know that God is mighty to save, and because of this, you never have to be afraid. May you have eyes to see God working all around you, and never forget God is always with you. 
May you know and understand that the mighty and powerful God who created the heavens and the earth loves you, chose you, and has adopted you into his family. Oliver, may you seek to intimately know your creator and the author of your story, which was ordained before even one day came to be. And glorify God through it as you share it with others. Always remember you are a part of the greatest story ever told. All right. Our reading is Ephesians 3, 16 through 21. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep mm. is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all uh, the fullness of God. Now to him is able to do immeasurably more than uh, all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is in, at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I'll see if I can do this without crying. Not likely. <laughs> Judah, you are a gift from the Lord, and we are so grateful that we get to be your parents. May you know how loved you are, first by God, then by us and others. May you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, fixing your eyes on him and walking in truth. May you follow Christ's example in the way you treat people, loving them unconditionally, seeking justice, being generous with your time and resources, and taking the posture of a servant. May you be humble and open to correction when you make mistakes, and be quick to forgive when you are wronged. Judah, may you embrace and cultivate the passions, gifts, and skills God has given you in order to serve God and others. May God give you peace, hope, strength, and contentment. And may you wake up each day with a deep desire to glorify God in all you do, say, and think. Amen. Amen. Yeah, great job, you guys. It's okay. Someone's trying to clap. You can certainly clap for that. So we did uh, do a certificate for them that just acknowledges that today they uh, dedicated their children to the Lord. And and uh, if you would join me, I'm going to just pray a prayer of blessing over them. We, I, I just uh, read a verse, you know, that talks about uh, Jesus taking them, the children, in his arms and blessing them and laying hands on them. And uh, that's what we're going to do. I'll let the parents handle the taking them in their arms. But uh, if you would join me, I'm going to pray for them. And if you're so inclined, you can certainly reach a hand up as we uh, pray a prayer of blessing over these children. Will you join me? Father God, we love you and we're so grateful for children, so grateful for life, so grateful, Lord, for the privilege of being parents, but also grateful for the privilege of being a church that's walking alongside uh, these families. And uh, God, today we just want to uh, pray your blessing on these three, Wesley and Judah and Oliver. I pray your protection over them. I pray your blessing on them. I pray, God, for strength and courage for these families. May their homes always be filled with the aroma of Christ. I pray against the enemy, that the enemy would have no place in these homes. And, Lord, I pray that, uh, God, you would just uh, keep these families strong in you and that these commitments that they've made today would continue to resonate uh, throughout their years. Lord, just thank you for Wesley. Thank you for Judah. Thank you for Oliver. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, you guys. And, and uh, let's give them another round of applause.
Thank you, guys. Good job. I like to do child dedications because no matter how bad my sermon is, you're going to love today's service because <laughs> that was awesome. Love that. So, um, Shifting gears, let me uh, read the text that we are going to be uh, talking about today. And it's found in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And we read this, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The word of the Lord. I know it's a bad idea to start a message on a negative tone, but no one ever accused me of being smart. So I want to start with a question. What is something you hate? What is something you hate? Could somebody remove this lady, please? There's one in every crowd. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things I dislike, right? I'm I'm not fond of temperatures when they get over 80 degrees. I'd rather not miss a meal. I don't like football teams that have terrible offenses. But... What would you say is something that you actually hate? A couple of weeks ago, we learned that Tome hates feet. There's that. But what do you hate? I mean, there are a few things. That, like, I think I hate people who are mean to an underdog. I hate when someone bugs me on purpose when I'm trying to sleep. But I don't know if you thought about this, but God hates some things. In Proverbs 6, we read this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. And today we're going to talk about something else that God hates. In the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is in tears because God won't accept their worship. And Malachi explains to them, beginning in verse 14, we read this, you cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart, remain loyal to the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. 
if you've been around Lake City for a while, then you might get the idea that I actually like preaching about divorce since I end up with this topic a lot. I don't. At the same time, I love talking about marriage, and unfortunately, you can't talk about marriage without on occasion talking about divorce. In fact, you might be wondering even now why we haven't have a sermon on divorce. And the shorter answer is because we've been working through the book of Mark, Servant Heart, Kingdom Mind, and this week's sermon is Mark 10. So God decided that we were talking about divorce this week. But I want to acknowledge that this is a hard topic. Before we go any further, I need to remind everyone of God's grace. God is the God of another chance. In fact, if you've gone through a divorce or a hard separation, I'd like to speak to you for just a minute. I know that a sermon like this is hard for you. In a minute, I'm going to share some statistics around divorce. And I know that's especially hard for you. And you might be asking, how can you possibly know that? Because you've told me. I also know for some of you, divorce was the last thing you wanted, that you did everything you knew to do to preserve your marriage. Listen, there is no judgment in this sermon, just a desire to better understand what Jesus had to say about this topic of divorce. My life verse is Romans 8:28. All things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And when I think back to some of the really difficult and painful times in my life, I'm so grateful that God was faithful to his promise to never leave me or forsake me. And I don't know how God is going to use all of this in your life, but I know that if you'll be faithful and look to Jesus, he will be faithful to be there for you. If you're here and your parents have gone through a divorce, please hear me. Your parents' divorce doesn't define you. You are a child of the king. Your life isn't dictated by a bunch of statistics. God is for you, and he is way bigger than these statistics. And know your church family is here for you. And finally, if you are unmarried, I'd like to say something to you. And young people, I include you in this thought. I hope as you hear this sermon that you are drawn to the truth that God has a plan for his people, a plan that is for our good and for our flourishing because he loves us. And I pray that this hard sermon will draw your eyes to Jesus. And all of you, thanks for being here and being brave enough to sit through another sermon on divorce. Of course, you might have just shown up at church with no idea that today's sermon was on Mark 10 and the topic would be divorce. But either way, I'm glad that you're here. But I'd like to challenge you all with this. As your heart gets heavy, I want you to think of someone that has gone through a divorce. I remember when my best friend in high school's parents got a divorce and how hard it was on him. And I had, no, I had nothing for him at the time. I didn't know what to say to him. So we just cried together. And it followed him all of his life. As your heart gets heavy, think of them. I'm going to be thinking of my my friend and praying for him. Or you could picture someone you know that is married and pray hard for them that their marriage might stay strong. Marriages are under attack and everybody could use prayer for their marriage. So if you're sitting here and you've already gone through a divorce, remember while God has his reasons for hating divorce, God will never hate you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, and his love for you will never change. I love Philip Yancey's quote, There is nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less.
I want you to be reminded I'm a child of the king and his love for me will never change. Will you say that with me? I'm a child of the king and his love for me will never change. Here's the thing. We know how God feels about divorce, but it's because he created us. He knows how we work best. I'm going to share some statistics here. And why share these statistics that can be so hard to hear? Because often what you will hear people say, and couples have expressed this to Kelly and I when we've met with them, they'll say things like, well, I just think the kids would be better off this way. Or they'll say, I just think this will be better for everyone, including me. And I'm just here to say that's not God's best. And I just think these statistics just affirm that truth. But remember, these are just statistics. But they do give us a little window into what happens in a society when divorce happens. Remember, God isn't bound by statistics. But here are just a few from the Heritage Foundation. Children whose parents have divorced are increasingly the victims of abuse and neglect. They exhibit more health problems as well as behavioral and emotional problems. They're involved more frequently in crime and drug abuse. They have a higher rate of suicide. Children of divorced parents more frequently demonstrate a diminished learning capacity. They perform more poorly than peers from intact two-parent families in reading, spelling, and math. Divorce generally reduces the income of the child's primary household and seriously diminishes the potential of every member of the household to accumulate wealth. For families that were not poor before the divorce, the drop in income can be as much as 50%. Religious worship, which has been linked to health and happiness, as well as longer marriages and better life, family life, is less prevalent in divorced families. I'm going to remind you one more time, you aren't defined by these statistics, but they are what you would expect in a culture where God's design is ignored. And by the way, I'm not talking about just those outside the church. So today I want to take a look at Mark 10 by asking three, asking and answering three questions. If God hates divorce, then why did God even allow it? And if God hates divorce, then what's the alternative? And if God hates divorce, then when is it permissible? I wonder if you only had six months to live, how would you spend that time? A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Tom reminded us that Jesus on his last night before the cross washed his disciples' feet. As we start chapter 10 of the book of Mark, we are entering what seems to be about the last six months of Jesus's life here on earth. What would you do if you only had six months to live? What did Jesus do with that time? Well, he continued to do what he came to do. He continues to teach. We read in verse, beginning in verse 1, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So right away we're made aware of a couple of things here in chapter 10. First, Jesus is in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. You can see on the map there, it's, it's generally that area... Uh, mapped out by that red circle. And then we learned that it says, as was his custom. In other words, this isn't the first time that he's doing this. In fact, it would appear that Jesus had a bit of a circuit that he ran that always found him teaching and discipling his followers. And then it says that while he was teaching, the Pharisees came up to him in order to test him. And I wonder when these Pharisees come up to Jesus, if he's teaching, how do they approach him? 
I suspect they weren't discreet. In fact, they wanted to make a scene. And how do I know that? Because it didn't say that they were curious. It didn't say that they needed clarification. It didn't say that they wanted to learn more. No, it says they came up in order to test. So rather than be discreet, they are doing just the opposite. They are about to test him and they want to trap him publicly in front of everyone. In fact, the question they're about to ask him is a question that has the potential to be dangerous, even life-threatening to Jesus. And what is that question? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And you might think calling this question life-threatening is a bit of hyperbole, but it isn't. The region where this story takes place, where this question is being asked of Jesus, is ruled by King Herod Antipas. This is the same King Herod that we read about earlier in Mark 6. He was responsible for beheading John the Baptist. And why did he put John the Baptist to death? Here's what we read in Mark 6. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. The Bible tells us that King Herod had a grudge against John because John was brave enough to speak truth about Herod's adultery with his brother's wife, Herodias. And now the Pharisees are asking Jesus a question that could potentially put Jesus in the crosshairs of King Herod. But I don't think that's really the trap that the Pharisees were springing. I don't think that is the reason why the Pharisees would walk up in the middle of his teaching, make a scene and ask this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? In order to understand the trap they were setting, you have to understand what most of the religious leaders at the time believed about divorce. There were two main schools of thought that centered around two of the most prominent rabbis. The first was Beit Hillel, which means the house of Hillel. And the second was Beit Shammai, house of Shammai. Last week, Pastor Jim talked about sectarianism, those divisions that form around things that we believe. Well, the followers of these two rabbis' teaching would perfectly illustrate this. While they agreed on many of the major issues of Jewish law, their disciples were often in conflict. There were some 300 differences between these two houses. The house of Hillel was the more lenient and the more popular view. The house of Shammai was a stricter and less popular view. Shammai maintained that a man could only divorce his wife for a serious transgression like adultery, while Hillel taught that a man could divorce his wife for virtually anything because she was too loud in public, because she ruined his dinner, because he found another that was more attractive to him. And I'm guessing that the Pharisees saw multiple ways that this could go bad for Jesus. I'm sure many of them thought he'd give an answer that would be way too lenient and dismissive of the law. After all, this is the man whose disciples had way too uh, light a regard for the Sabbath. This is a man that in John 8 has forgiven the adulteress. I mean, he travels with immoral people like tax collectors and women like Mary Magdalene. But as we're going to see in a moment, they are going to be sorely disappointed in fact, Jesus is going to come down in a manner so strict, I think even the disciples are a little caught off guard. So much so that you're going to see the disciples come back to him later to ask for some clarification. So Jesus is about to answer a question that would potentially put him in King Herod's line of fire. And or he's going to alienate the followers of one side of the debate among the Jews or the other. 
It literally looks like a no-win situation, but of course we're talking about Jesus, God in the flesh. So the scene is set and we come to the first of our three questions. If God hates divorce, why did he even make an allowance for it? Here's what we read beginning in verse 3. What, he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Notice what Jesus does. He doesn't go to the house of Hillel. He doesn't go to the house of Shammai. He doesn't go to any wisdom of the time. No, rather than beginning with something they disagree on, Jesus chooses common ground. He goes straight to God's word. What did Moses command you? And notice he doesn't start with a lesson, but rather with a question. What did Moses command you? This is such a great lesson for us when we find ourselves in difficult conversations. Start with common ground. Start with an understanding of what God's word says and then ask questions. That word translated command is the word enetolato, which means to charge or to command. But look at their response. Remember, these are the Jewish teachers of the law. The last thing they want to do is to be found guilty of misquoting the scripture. So they responded with Moses allowed. That word translated allowed is epitrepsin, which means exactly how it's translated here, to allow or to permit. See, they were careful to not claim that Moses commanded them to do what they do. And what is it that Moses allowed for a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus doesn't argue that point or disagree that Moses allowed that. Rather, he answers our question that we're asking right now. If God hates divorce, why does he allow it? Why did the, the law of Moses allow divorce? And we see the answer and really the key to so much of Jesus's teaching. It's a heart issue. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart. What does Jesus mean by this? Here's what I don't think he means. I don't think Jesus is referring to a man's hardness of heart towards his wife. I think that falls under discipleship and it's a symptom of our heart issue. That's one of the reasons we have re-engaged to help us deal with our heart towards our spouse. No, the hardness of heart that Jesus is referring to here is the hardness of heart towards God and God's will for their lives. Think sin. And yes, sometimes it comes out in our heart towards our wife or our husband, but this isn't a command like you are to do this. In other words, you are to write a certificate of divorce. Rather, it's a concession. Knowing that the heart of man is sinful, God made a concession for that reality. And I'll come back to that later. But this brings us to the second question. If God hates divorce, then what's the alternative? Beginning in verse 6, we read this, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Marriage is God's idea. Some would try to have you believe that marriage is a man-made construct, a man-made institution, and certainly it can be just that. But when we speak of marriage here at LC3, we are talking about the biblical covenant that God ordained way back in the beginning. Listen, that's so important. I'm going to say it again because I'm going to come back to this. When we speak of marriage here at LC3, we are talking about the biblical covenant that God ordained way back in the beginning. You might be asking, how far back? Well, Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1 and 2, so the beginning. 
God created them male and female. He created them. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. It's God's idea and it's God's vision for marriage. I love the quote from G.K. Chesterton. No, the vision is always solid and reliable. The vision is always a fact. It's the, our rea- it's the reality that is often a fraud. When Kelly and I got married, we did all that premarital counseling. We, I mean, we wanted to have a Christ-filled marriage and family. Of course, we had no idea that 40 years later it would look like this. Here's the thing. Many of those 40 years have been really wonderful and amazing. But there have been times when we've thought, maybe we've made a mistake. I'm just not sure we can figure this one out. But God's vision for marriage is solid and reliable. When we got married, God joined Kelly and I together. The two have become one. But there were times in our marriage that our reality was really hard. My kids love telling the story of the time that we were in one of those fights. And I remember I threw something. I don't even know what it was. And Kelly comes up behind me and she grabs it and she says, I can throw things too. And she throws something. (laughs) But our reality sometimes can be so hard that it makes us wonder if maybe we'd just be better off without each other. Maybe our kids would be better off if they don't see us throwing things around. That was our reality, and that was the fraud. Some of you right now are hearing this, and you're thinking, I'm not sure God's vision for my marriage is right. I mean, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, you don't understand how challenging my marriage is. You don't know my husband. You don't know the woman I'm married to. And you're right, I don't but it doesn't change the vision that God has for your marriage. Some of you maybe have just recently married and you are living the dream and that is so great. But there might come a day (laughs) when you find yourself wondering, what have I done? I mean, maybe divorce would just be better than this. I mean, it's, it's so bad. What else can I do? The alternative to divorce is God's vision for marriage. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The vision is always solid and reliable. The alternative to divorce is God's vision for marriage, but that's a big statement. Believing that statement and living it out are two different things. If you know me, then you know I could spend the next two hours talking about marriage and God's vision for marriage. Instead, let me just encourage you with this, and you knew this was coming. Wherever you are in your marriage, come check out Reengage. It's every Thursday night at 6.30. There's no commitment if you just want to come and check it out, see what it's all about, but we teach the biblical covenant that God ordained way back in the beginning. And it's a wonderful way to strengthen your marriage around the vision so that when reality strikes, your marriage is armed and protected. So the first question was, why did God make a provision for divorce? Because of our hearts. And if not, and question number two is, if not divorce, then what's the alternative? And that's God's vision for marriage, which brings us to the third and probably the most challenging and divisive of the three questions. If God hates divorce, then when is it permissible? 
We read beginning in verse 10, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. I mentioned earlier that Jesus answered, that Jesus' answer to the Pharisees caught his disciples off guard. Remember, this scene is happening towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, maybe six months before the cross. By now, the disciples are very aware of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness and grace and compassion. So I imagine that this hardline answer to the Pharisees might have been a little surprising to them. But remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So in God's vision for marriage is one flesh and to not separate, then that's what Jesus is going to teach. But his disciples needed some clarification. In the book of Matthew, chapter 19, Matthew records this same scene. And after Jesus clarifies the disciples' question, their conclusion to all of this, we find in Matthew 19, verse 10, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man and his wife, it is better not to marry. You have to chuckle a little, right? But it does let you realize how challenging it can be to live out the vision that God has for our marriage. After hearing all that Jesus had to say and asking more questions of Jesus, the disciples conclude, well, I guess it's better to not marry. So before I go on, I want to make sure you hear me say this about marriage. It's God's idea. God ordained. Sometimes in the church, we elevate marriage way too much. In other words, there is nothing wrong with you if you are single and you're here today. On the other hand, sometimes we don't hold it in high enough regard. It is part of God's plan for human flourishing. Young people, hear me. I give marriage a 10 out of 10. Yes, it's hard. Sometimes it feels downright impossible. But if God calls you into marriage, it is so worth it. Here's the thing. We always want to consider the counsel of the entire Bible, not just individual passages. And there is much more that is said about marriage and divorce in the Bible. And from all of that, we've developed a teaching position on marriage and divorce and remarriage here at Lake City. It's our best attempt at taking what God's word says and living it out. So verses like Matthew 5, 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever makes, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Or 1 Corinthians 7, 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Or Romans 7, 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released uh, from the law of marriage. So at LC3, we believe in God's vision for marriage. Two people, through some mystery, are united in a biblical covenant, becoming literally this new thing, one flesh. God's vision from the beginning was that what he brought together, no one would separate. But he has made an allowance. And why? Because he knows our hearts. But please understand this, just because it's allowed doesn't mean it's automatically God's best. We will always encourage what God encourages. If you read Hosea, the book of Hosea, you'll see a story of redemption. Hosea has an adulterous wife and God keeps telling him to take her back, which is God's heart for his church. God is the God of redemption. So our position at Lake City, based on these verses, is we believe divorce needs to be a last resort. 
but scripture allows for it in the case of fornication, which is broad enough to include more than just adultery, but it certainly includes adultery. And divorce is justified when an unbelieving partner leaves or abandons. If you want to see the entire teaching position, we'll provide a link for you on our LC3 website uh, on our family ministries page. But know this, if your marriage has suffered because of adultery or sexual immorality, if you're right now in the middle of a divorce, God is still the great redeemer. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that no matter what's happening in your marriage, you just got to hang in there and ride this thing out. Listen, we're your church family. I'm one of your pastors. We have a biblical responsibility to counsel, shepherd, guide, protect, and lead all of you. We want you safe. We want you growing in your Christian journey. We want to walk through the most challenging situations with you. So if you're not safe, we want you safe before we even begin talking about reconciliation and redemption and whatever other solution is necessary. Please know that we are here for you. If you need to talk to someone, you can just put on your connect card, mark confidential, only the pastors and elders will see it. Ladies, if you prefer, you can email women at lc3.com and our women's leadership team will see it. But as we come to a close, I want to say a couple of different prayers. This first one, I just want to say a quick prayer uh, for those of you who, who are here that are divorced or maybe in the middle of a really hard separation or maybe your parents have, have gone through a divorce. If you would let me, I'd just like to pause and just pray for all of you. Will you join me? Father God, thank you for your promise that you never leave us or forsake us. You are the great redeemer and Lord, we need you. And God, I just specifically pray right now for all those that have gone through the heartache of divorce, either themselves or their parents or have been touched closely by it, just pray, God, your blessing on each one of them. Lord, I pray that you would just meet them right where they are, that you would give them a peace that passes all understanding, that you would make your presence felt so clearly that they would know that they are in your arms. Lord, I pray against the enemy that would try to bring shame and guilt. And instead, Lord, I pray that they would hear your voice saying, you are my beloved. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord, bless them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And then I'd like to do something a little different. If you are married, even if your spouse isn't here because they're working or something, if you are married, please stand up. When I, when I perform a wedding ceremony, uh, and I stole this from a, another pastor friend of mine, right after I pronounce them husband and wife, right after I charge them to be faithful to their vows, I look them in the eye, like I'm looking all of you in the eye, and I say, stay married. Stay married. Stay married. Stay married.
And what I'd like to do is pray for all of these marriages as well as uh, close up our, this part of our service. So if you'd join me, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I pray right now for every person that's standing up for their marriage. Lord, I have no idea where each marriage is. Lord, you do. And I'm grateful for that. God, I suspect that some of the marriages that are standing right now are in a hard place. And maybe even wondering, have I made a mistake? Lord, speak to them. Let them sense your vision for their marriage. Lord, I'm, I'm sure there's other marriages that are healthy. And God, I say thank you. And I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to bless them and continue to, to strengthen them and use them to strengthen other marriages around them. And then, Lord, for all of these couples that are standing, I just pray, God, uh, your protection over their marriage and over their homes. And, Lord, for all those uh, seated that maybe marriage is in their future, I pray, God, that they would see your vision for marriage. Lord, thank you again for just the privilege of coming and gathering as your people to, to be here in this place together. Lord, help us to walk away from here different for having heard these words from Mark 10. And Lord, as we go to the Lord's table, may we be reminded of what you did for us on the cross of Calvary. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.